Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 6. This is where we're going to spend the next several weeks together. And while we'll be going to other texts, this is the starting point for us. And it will be uh, as we consider the subject of spiritual warfare. We started this series last week because uh, the elders and I believe it's a critical time in the life of our church. We believe that there always have been. But particularly at this time, it's, it's worthy of, of, of particular note that there are spiritual forces beyond our realm who are just beyond our own, who are at work, and they are at war, and they are at war over things that are directly related to the work that is transpiring among us. And I spoke a little bit to that last week of the phenomenal things that God has done that has even blown this pastor's mind. There are things I had plans for, and God just completely cut that off because he had something better for this church. And so I've learned over the last year uh, that, boy, it really is worth interrupting your plans when God is interrupting your plans. God is doing phenomenal things. And at the same time, we know because the scriptures teach us that when God is at work, so is the enemy. And the enemy, just to put it simply, hates us. And he is at work right now. He is preparing for war against us. Some of you probably already noticed this. Or maybe, maybe you're just noticing the physical or the tangible effects of it. You, you may notice some things, some increased tension at home or at work or among your children or in your marriage. I don't think you should necessarily see that as merely coincidental. You are attached to a body of believers that is poised for mind-blowing things in terms of extending the kingdom of God here and around the world. And if you are facing an extraordinary time of stress... I don't know this infallibly, but I think it's worthy of your consideration that, you, that it just might be a part of that larger battle as you experience some of these things. And so today, what I want to do is begin in this text that we're just going to settle into for the next several weeks on spiritual warfare. I want to describe for you from Scripture two things. Number one, the nature of this battle Because we often don't understand what spiritual warfare is. Either we deny that it exists and we think there's some tangible, modern, scientific, systematic thing that we can do to fix whatever's going on. Or, on the other hand, we adopt romanticized, uh, hyper-vigilant, different kinds of things that, that really aren't a reflection of what spiritual warfare is as the Word of God describes it. So we need to know what we're up against. And we, know, we need to know who we're up against. The second thing I want to do, beyond the nature of the battle, is I want to give you confidence. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already won. And so I want to instill that, that in, the, that in fact that Jesus Christ has provided us with every resource necessary to overcome. Look at these words from Paul in Romans chapter 8. They give me great hope as I begin this message because the battle is fierce, but it's already won. Look at what Paul says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those whom God has chosen, those whom God sent Jesus to die for, those who have repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus, 
Who's going to bring a charge against them? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. And the intended answer is there's no one who can legitimately bring a charge against you, come against you. Why is it? Because it's God who justifies. God's already declared something about you, and whatever you think about yourself, what other other people may think about you, what God has declared is what is real. And when he declares that, we have no one left to condemn us because the only one who could rightfully condemn us on the basis of the blood of Jesus has chosen not to condemn us. And so Paul goes on and says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is inter- who indeed is interceding for us with all that in view. On the basis of that infallible truth comes this question, who will separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sore. You notice, you notice he's not promising deliverance from all that stuff. He's saying when you find yourself in the middle of that, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, we might add bad medical reports, troubled marriage, uh, hellion children, job loss, whatever I'm dealing with right now. Is anything like that going to happen? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. People from the outside look at us the way they looked at the Israelites as they stood on the banks of the Red Sea with an impassable sea in front of them and the most powerful army in the world behind them and they got no weapons, they don't have any training. If they had weapons, they wouldn't know how to use them. That's the way they were viewed. That's the way you and I are viewed today as the body of Christ. Sheep to be slaughtered. Here's what God says about us though. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so by the end of my series, my goal is that there be no more excuses for spiritual defeat. None. Because if you belong to Jesus, you don't have any excuses. God has given you, he's given me, every resource that is available to us. But, but we need to understand a couple of things, like I said at the outset. So the first is the nature of the battle And that's characterized by a couple of things. God's sovereignty being the first of those. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Spiritual warfare is not about making me look like some sort of spiritual superstar. Spiritual warfare, if it's legit, and if if I come out victorious, people that look at it from the outside in aren't glorifying me. They're giving glory to God. And if I mentioned it all, it's who was that idiot that got caught in the middle of all that? Stand in the power of his might. God, brothers and sisters, is sovereign in control of everything. And so Paul begins by pointing out the sovereignty of God in all of this. He is in complete control. His dominion, the dominion of spiritual warfare is exclusively his dominion. It belongs to him. Even though we may do battle with our enemy, even though that battle may seem very fierce at times, brothers and sisters, we are fighting in the arena that was built and owned by our heavenly father. We stand in his strength and in his might. It's his dominion. And so Paul, in the the very first sentence, outright rejects something that we need to make sure we don't fall into, something called dualism, this idea that somehow warfare assumes that God and Satan are equal and they're just on opposite sides. God created Satan. 
God dispensed Satan from his kingdom. God owns Satan. He controls Satan. That great reformer Martin Luther said, he may be the devil, but he's God's devil. God controls Satan. Satan does nothing without checking his leash. And brothers and sisters, the scriptures tell us his leash is short. Now here's the other thing, though, that, that, that should in, it'll unsettle you a bit when you think about that. Because this is the difficult thing to comprehend and accept. Nothing that happens to us is outside the control of a sovereign God, and that includes satanic attack. That includes things that are going to come against us. That means that when spiritual attacks come, they come because our God allows them into our lives for our long-term good. We see an example of this in a conversation between Jesus and Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Think about that for a minute. Satan has come to me. Have you ever noticed any time in the scriptural narrative that God and Satan end up in a conversation about a third party? The third party ends up up the creek without a paddle. Have you ever noticed that? Happened to Job, right? I'm, I'm going about to and fro seeking what I can, who I can find to devour. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Here you've got this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And he goes, you know, Satan's been talking to me about you. And I, every time I see those kinds of effects in the, in the Bible, I'm tempted to just drop my head and go, Lord, please don't bring me up in a conversation with the devil. Don't, I, I, I don't want that. Here comes the harder part, though. Here's the harder part. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Can you imagine Peter hearing those words? He's like, what, what? Okay, okay, but what, what about the rest of it? Like you, know, like you told him no, right? Like you, you control everything. You told him no. You told him to leave me alone. No. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, I'm allowing this because I've already given you every tool you need in my power to be victorious. And having been victorious with your faith still firmly intact, that will strengthen your brothers. That will lead to 3,000 people coming to faith in Jerusalem. That will lead to the spread of the church and the gospel message to the ends of the earth. By the end of the first century, it all begins right here. Right here. Too often we want spiritual victory without the training and without the fight and without the broken bones and without the bruises. And God says, you're not getting any of that because I have a great desire for you to be better on the other side. And the only way that happens is if in my sovereign will, you go through some stuff. Occasionally, those things are going to happen. So Jesus says, I gave him permission in order to strengthen your faith. Does this sound familiar? In Genesis, we read, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This isn't excusing the devil and his works. He will be condemned for those works, but God will use them to strengthen you, to strengthen me in the end. Now, that's God's sovereignty. Here's the other emphasis that comes out in this text in Ephesians 6, and that's God's empowerment. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. How do you do that? Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The whole armor. Now this presumes that God has provided 
all of that armor. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek text is, is an, a word that's been translated over, transliterated over into English. We use it today. It's the word panoply. If you know what a panoply is, it's basically a complete collection. How many collectors I got in here? You collect stuff, whatever. Might be Shepherdstown rocks, rocks, right? Could be something as simple as that. Could be antique cars. It could be American girl dolls. It could be stuffed animals. It might be any number of things. Antique books. Uh, I actually have a collection of 1985 Topps baseball cards. Now, you may think, wow, you could put your son through college with that. Well, I could if my 13-year-old dumb self hadn't bent so many of them. Perhaps. I also might have been able to get a little bit more out of them if I had all of them. I don't. I don't have the complete set. Because when you're 13 years old in 1985, $17 seems like a bit much for a complete set. Because you're not thinking that 30 some odd years later, that $17 might turn into enough to pay for a semester of your kid's college. You're not thinking ahead like that. And so you just collect one by one, and then you bend them, and then you trade them out. And you, give the, you, know, you give the more valuable ones away because somebody wants to give you enough money to buy a Coke in the vending machine at school. So I have a collection, but I don't have a panoply. It's not complete. When Paul uses the word panoply, he means to emphasize completeness. You are, are given absolutely everything if you belong to Jesus that you need. And, and what you're given is described for us in a metaphor of military armor. This complete collection. Completely sufficient for the battle that is coming. Completely sufficient. And we are going to need it, apparently, because we have an enemy that is scheming. He has methods that he has been honing for 2,000 years. He is crafty and shrewd and keen, and he is constantly plotting against us. That's what the scriptures tell us. And that's an important thing to remember when you pray, by the way. Uh, most of, and I've discovered this even in my own prayer life, if I'm not careful, I, I, will, I will slip into a way of thinking that, that makes things of, of, that are really, they're, they're important, but they're not of paramount importance, and I'll put them in that higher category when they really don't belong there, because I'm forgetting it's the stuff in the higher category that affects all of this. And the result is, I think we fill about 90% of our prayers in the West with grades and job and marriage and finances. And, 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 but what we're facing here is that other 10% that probably should be the 90 because it's far more deadly and more intricately, intricately connected than we think it is to, to some of these other things. We have an enemy who will use even those things we care about as a distraction. But his greatest and most effective method is to turn us against each other. This is why Paul continues in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You gotta think about that. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whatever it is. Right? Unresolved issues in a marriage, problems with your children, you got a problem with somebody in this room or a problem with somebody at the 11 o'clock service, and you reflexively begin to think that the problem really is the other person. Well, number one, it might not be them, it might be you. 
Or it could be, there could be some issues on both sides. But what we too often forget when there's conflict within the body of Christ is that there is a, a panoply of forces behind the veil that seek the disunity of the body. And I become a tool of the enemy when I become selfish in that regard. And he turns me against my own brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often that most important thing gets dismissed in the process. And so these, these enemies behind the veil do that because they are hostile and evil and highly skilled at what they do. And they seek your destruction and the destruction of your marriage and the destruction of your family and the destruction of our church and the stoppage of the advance of the kingdom of God within us. And so as a result of that, Paul says this in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against those schemes. We, we don't have to stand. We, we don't have to be defeated. The only thing that will spare us humiliating defeat is this panoply of God that's described here. Here's the good news. That panoply, that full armor, is available to anybody who wants it, who belongs to Jesus, and the other promise is wearing and wielding it will result in overwhelming victory for you and for your family and for the body of Christ and the unstoppable advance of the kingdom of God. So it is incredibly important that we understand what this means. Furthermore, that we understand that this requires a different kind of life. If you put this armor on, your prayers are going to be affected by this armor. Your lifestyle is going to be affected by this armor. The choices you make are going to be affected by this armor. And so let's, let's take a brief look at this in reverse order. And then I want to start with the very first piece this morning. There's offensive weapons that make up this armor. There's prayer. And there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then there's defensive armor that we place on, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sandals of readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness. All, all of those things are given to us so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. What's interesting to me is that these are a carbon copy of the armor that Isaiah prophesied would be worn by the Messiah. Look at, look at these words in Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So when Paul mentions the armor of God in Ephesians 6, he means intentionally to connect it with the very armor worn by the Messiah. This is Jesus' own armor given to you and given to me. And the first piece of it, is given to us in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Stand with truth like a belt around your waist. In Isaiah eleven five, it was prophesied of Jesus there. It was called the root of Jesse. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now the belt, I'm wearing one right now. Most of you are probably wearing one. We're all thankful that we're all wearing belts, amen? Because we know what a belt typically is used for. Keeps you from losing your pants. That's a good thing. Uh, that was also true in the ancient world. But the belt worn by the Roman soldier carried a more complicated uh, feature and function than that. It was literally the one piece of armor that held together all of the other pieces of armor. 
All right? So you, you're, you can wear the breast, breastplate of righteousness. You can hold the shield of it. You can, do, you can theoretically do all of that without this belt, but it's going to shift. It's going to fall off. Everything begins with this belt. The belt. And this thing that connects all of the other things, this thing that if it's missing means that nothing else is going to line up, this thing that ensures all the other things are essential for the defeat of the enemy are in place and defective, this belt, Paul says it's truth. This is where it starts. The difference between victory and defeat, the difference between bringing glory to God or bringing shame on ourselves is ultimately dependent upon whether we wear the belt of truth. And the word truth, as it occurs here in Ephesians, has both an internal and an external component. We need to look at those so we can understand what is required of us if we're going to wear the belt of truth. So let's start with the external. External truth, as Paul describes it here, is objective reality evidenced in relation to actual facts. The Latin fathers used the term veritas to describe it. And there are multiple references to this external truth in the scriptures themselves. You can take a look at a, a few of those on the screen, beginning in Ephesians 1.13, just five chapters earlier. Paul said, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, everything that comes after that, the gospel of salvation, your belief in him, your being seated with him in the promise of the Holy Spirit is anchored in this thing called truth. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. The gospel is truth. And then in 2 Timothy 2, do your best, Paul tells young Timothy, as he pastors the very church that's being written to in, in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 6. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, literally, as a, as a surgeon would take a scalpel and with a level of precision required to cut what needs to be cut and to leave unmolested everything else to rightly divide in that way the word of truth. And then Jesus, in this one abundantly clear statement, speaks to the focus of that truth. He says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. The truth of God is embodied first and foremost, and ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who would later say this in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we live in a world that doesn't like this. We live in a world where many Christians don't like this. We live in a culture that likes to try to convince us that truth itself is not ultimate, it's not transcendent, it's not really outside of me or independent of me. Truth is socially constructed. The great postmodern philosopher Richard Rory puts it this way, truth is not discovered, truth is created. You got to think about that for a minute, don't you? Now, we, we all sort of create our own truth, which is interesting because we live in a world that's trying to convince us of that. Jesus and Paul are telling us in sync here that there is an external, objective, transcendent truth, and it exists outside of and independent of Joel. You know what that means? Joel can choose to reject it if he wants to, but that doesn't change it, does it? Joel can reject truth all he wants to. My opinion at that point becomes irrelevant. You say, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe the God that's described it. I don't believe it. It doesn't really matter what you believe. 
Your belief is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is whether what you're thinking and the desires of your heart are in sync with this thing that is independent of you. That thing that is outside of you doesn't change simply because you don't like it. I don't like the fact that donuts make me fat. That doesn't mean I can eat all the donuts I want and pretend not, that I'm not going to have a problem later on. Right? There's an objective standard here. And we live by that standard or we suffer defeat. And so we got a, the first choice of spiritual warfare is whether you believe that. Paul warned Timothy of the following in 2 Timothy 4.3. He said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, here's the interesting thing. Y'all got to be, I, I love getting amens, but y'all need to be careful the next few minutes, okay? Because here's what I've discovered in 27 years of ministry. Every, I've read that passage, and what I've discovered over time is, is many, not all, not all, many of the same people that tend to amen the loudest about people with itching ears tend to, them, tend to themselves have the itchiest ears. Because they read that passage and they immediately think of somebody else. What this says, because what Paul has just concluded saying in, in, in 2 Timothy, is all Scripture is inspired of God. All Scripture is that you need to study Scripture. Scripture is the objective standard of truth. But here's, here's the fact of the matter. It, scripture will mess with you, won't it? Yeah, if you're one of those people who think you've got it all figured out and nobody, and I don't need anybody to teach me. i got all this figured out. I'm not submitting to anybody and I'm, I'm not going to listen to anybody. i got it all figured out. In that, well, then when you hear something that presses up against something you're doing, you may not have even been aware of it until the Word of God started pressing up against it. and It's, it's a pain point for you. But if the way you think about that verse is always to think of others and never yourself, what do you do? I'm going to go somewhere where I hear things that, that, that confirm my biases, Right? I'm, I'm not going to consider the fact that there may be an area of my life where I may be in rebellion. I'm, I'm going to, you know what that's called? Itching ears. Itching ears. You hear something unpleasant, rubs you the wrong way. It, it, it pushes up against a long-held value or belief. Do you struggle through that or do you just dismiss it? Are you always looking for someone who will say exactly what you want them to say? It, it, this is tough. This is tough for people in my line of work. Because it takes, what, what ends up happening to those folks, they'll go to a place where all of the sin and the judgment, anything that's spoken against, is spoken against somebody else. Right? And churches are filled with people that have preachers, that any judgment is never about the people in this room. It's always about them who out there. And that does two things. Number one, it, it creates an us-them mentality. We've got an enemy and we've got a fight and our enemy's not Satan, it's somebody else. Well, that just contradicts exactly what Paul just said. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The other thing it does is it completely neuters your spiritual growth. It neuters it. 
And so, for those, particularly for those of you who were here yesterday and you sat with Dr. Prince and myself and Dr. Smith and we were, we were talking about how to open the scriptures and preach the whole counsel of God. Why is that important? It's because we need teachers and preachers of courage today. Courage. And I'm going to submit to you, it takes absolutely no courage whatsoever to stand on this stage in front of all of you and talk about people who are not in the room. What takes courage is to confront the people in the room. People that you love. People that you don't, you don't want them to feel unpleasant. And yet at the same time, Paul is calling us to embrace truth even when it hurts. You know, there, there are certain, when I played football in high school, there were, how do I keep this PG-13 in a mixed audience? There were, there were certain, I'll just put it this way, there are certain pieces of equipment that I would have preferred not to wear. You get where I'm going? Okay. Wasn't, it's not comfortable, is it, fellas? No. Should you wear it? If you want to have children one day, yeah, you probably should. There are going to be times when we're going to put the armor on, it's not going to feel very good. And that probably is never more true than when we're talking about this idea of truth. Truth. But itchy ears will result in you going into battle without your pants on. That is not something we need. We have an entire generation, both Christian and non, who prefer to stand on their own presumptions rather than on the truth of God, who use phrases like my truth and your truth, and it may be true for you, but it's not true for me, or I have alternative facts, who seek confirmation bias rather than truth. You cannot win this battle unless you and I stand firmly in the truth, objectively given, transcendently deployed, from an infinite source, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. All of it. That's the external part of it. But then there's an internal part of this too. And that's the application. Because outwardly, it's one, it's one thing to, to assent to truth. There's an objective standard, and I'm going to submit to that, whatever it is. It's quite another thing, isn't it, to, to apply this to your life. Because that means not only that I that I reject the outward lies and accept objective truth. It also means I purify my insides from falsehood. Because you can be doctrinally orthodox and still wind up humiliated, just like the sons of Sceva. We talked about in that narrative last week. You can be doctrinally orthodox and go to hell. You can be doctrinally orthodox and not wear the belt of truth. I have known men who could argue Scripture far better than me. Forwards and backwards, they knew it well. They knew all the jargon and the language, but underneath they were divisive and pugnacious and dishonest. Some of them beat their wives and abused their children. I sat in, in Caltort down in Ransom the other week, just two weeks ago, when the Houston Chronicle released an expose of a missions board that I have had all kinds of confidence in for years and years and years, and I'm still kind of waiting because they've got some good godly people at the top that I'm, I'm just assuming the best that they're going to get this straightened out, reading story after story after story of sexual assault on foreign mission field by missionaries. And I just sat hollowed out. 
not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say. These are people who, they could cross every T, they could dot every I, but they were wicked, wicked men. And mission boards and local churches that make excuses. And I was asked by a colleague, aren't you worried that you will ruin a man's ministry? And here's my answer. You all just need to know that. If you are that kind of individual, I absolutely want to ruin your ministry. Molesting a child and a getting up and presuming to wear the authority of God just because theologically all your T's are crossed and all your I's are dotted. You know what causes that kind of thing? It'll eventually lead, any, any of us are capable of it. I know you probably don't believe it. But read what the Bible says from Genesis to the maps about total depravity. You too are capable of this. You know what starts you down that road? Not just the, re, the rejection of external truth, but also the refusal to purify my own life with that truth. And to make sure I'm walking in sync with it. So many people who are one person on Sunday and a totally different individual on Monday. And so here's the question you got to ask yourself. It's a question of integrity. And if you can't answer it with an unqualified yes, you're going into battle without your pants on. Here's the question. You ready for it? Am I the same person in public that I am in private? It's a pretty simple question. Am I the same person in public and when no one else is looking? See, James speaks of this in James 1.8. He speaks of a double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. That's exactly where a lack of truth, either external or internal, will lead you to instability. It's an individual who lives a double life. It leads to churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep. It leads to entire societies full of people whose feet are planted firmly in midair. Because we don't assent to a transcendent standard and we don't live it. That's where it leads. So we now have a crisis of meaning in our culture because we refuse to live the truth and stand on the truth. We have told our young people in nearly every domain of society, truth isn't discovered, it's created. So go create your own truth. You can be anything you want to be. That's a lie. I can't be anything I want to be. I'm an overweight 47-year-old dude with a two-inch vertical. I'm never playing for the NBA. Ain't happening. I can declare all I want. Here's the hope of the gospel, all right? The satanic deception is you just create whatever. The truth of the gospel is you can be, and in submission to the Lord Jesus, you will be, Everything that God created you to be. What greater hope could there be than that? What you think you can do a better job than God? Creating your own stuff, but that's that's where we live. No objective standard of right and wrong, no clear unifying definitions of morality. You know what the result is? Between 2006 and 2016, in the United States of America, the most prosperous nation in the entire history of humanity, the suicide rate of our young people has tripled. Somebody's trying to fight without their pants on. And we scramble to try to figure out the reason. And, and what would be hilarious to me if it didn't break my heart 
is how people respond by blaming the church. Well, if they weren't so legalistic, if they weren't so judgmental, if they didn't have their, if they'd just given it, yeah, you want to take a look at the lives of these people? They weren't exactly listening to us when this tragedy hit. And meanwhile, the answer is 2,000 years old. It's in the very words of Jesus who reminds us of the following in John chapter 8. He, speaking of Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when you create your own truth, you're essentially doing the same thing your enemy is doing while simultaneously expecting to be victorious over your enemy? That's insane. We need meeting in order to live. And there is no meaning without truth, only instability. With truth, there is a belt that connects all other things in our lives into their proper place, and that brings victory. So the question is, am I going to stand in that truth, both confessing it and allowing it to purify everything in me that needs purification? Or am I going to create my own stuff? Am I going to, am I going to write my own narrative? There's actually a, an architectural trend that is afoot. For those of you that have been around for a while, you've probably heard me use this illustration before, but I think it's, it's so appropriate to the subject that we've been discussing. It's called postmodern architecture. Uh, if you're into buildings and just going like, I've been to a lot of major cities around the world, actually, and I, I see, build, and they just astound me. And I, I couldn't even begin to lay a brick, let alone know exactly how they put all that together. But I'm always just blown away, particularly by architecture. And, and postmodern architecture is one piece of a, of a larger cultural movement that just mixes all different kinds of styles. Architects actually call it polystylism. It mixes everything. The, the first truly postmodern building was the AT&T AT building in Manhattan. You can see it up there. Now, what's interesting about that is it, it looks pretty much like any modern skyscraper until you get to the top, right? And then you see that little Chippendale Thing on the, it's almost like, I mean, when I look at it, I'm not an architect, but when I look at it, I'm like, it's almost like they built the thing and then somebody forgot that thing and left it on top of it. Like something doesn't belong here. This doesn't, or like they started with the blueprints of a skyscraper, but by the time they got to the top, they thought they were building a grandfather clock. <laughs> you just, but that's what you can do with postmodern architecture. You can do any number of things. There's a there's a couple of other examples I'll show to you up here on the, uh, on the left. That's the Humana Building in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And one of my favorites is actually on the far right. That's the Seattle Public Library, downtown Seattle, Washington. I've stood in front of that building, but not under it. Because I don't know. Maybe I'm superstitious, whatever. I'm like, how in the world is that thing standing up? Do you see that? It's just this amazing thing. People are attracted to this kind of architecture. They like it because of the mixing of styles. Because you can, you can there's no, there doesn't look, at least on the outside, like there's any rhyme or reason to it. You can mix Corinthian columns with, with Greek architecture, and then you could drop a big old red target ball right in the middle of that if you want to. You can do whatever you want. You can have glass walkways that go over waterfalls and make it look like you're walking on air. You can, I mean, I'm telling you, we've reached the point in modern society where we can just about make a building do anything we want it to do. And, and you, you build the thing, you can make it look like it leans, you, can, you, you build something that isn't just a thing, but it's all kinds of things. You could break all conventions. Looking at it from the outside, it looks like you can have everything that you want, anything that you want. Now here's the thing with all of that. 
when you're done with all your dreaming and blueprints, the sucker's still got to stand up. And this is why, while anybody with means today, most people with means that want to build something like that, while most people would love to have a postmodern architect, nobody wants a postmodern engineer. Do they? Because we still, even intuitively, we understand there's some absolutes that cannot be violated. Okay, so we can dream big and we can say we want all this stuff and we want to make it look like it's just impossible for it to be there. But at the end of the day, you know who's going to save your bacon and have that thing standing and not falling? It's going to be the guy that nobody likes. It's going to be the guy that comes in there with the big thick rim glasses and the pocket protector and the disposition of a grumpy groundhog. But that's who you want, right? That's the guy comes in. This is either going to stand or it's not going to stand. And if you don't have that guy, I know not all engineers look like that. I know many of them are in front of me, no offense. But that's the guy you want, right? You want absolute truth when it comes to engineering because you don't want the thing to fall on your head because we realize even intuitively, you can lie about the way a building looks, but you can't lie about whether the design will hold. And we've already experienced this, tragically. 16 years ago in 2003, Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, France opened up a brand new terminal. You see the, the opening day on the right. It was breathtaking. On the left, that's what happened 11 months later. It collapsed. And when they were doing the forensics, they discovered that during construction, one of the individuals leading construction removed a support beam that an engineer had designed to go into the support beam because it wasn't aesthetically pleasing. And this is the result. See, we, we already know this through just basic laws of physics and gravity. You can't just build whatever you want. And, and, and Paul is telling us here, by starting with the belt of truth, this is your life as well. You can't just build your life any way you want. You can't simply follow culture and jettison the rule book and have everything be okay. And, and when we read the scripture honestly, it tells us clearly that when our life is out of sync with God's original design, without that biblical counterweight, you are headed for a fall. Satan will tell you, make it up, do whatever you want to do. After all, you should be happy. Here's the promise, though. God has spoken. God has given us every resource, and it starts right here. If we take up his word, if we stand on his word, if we will be faithful to his word, if we will live his word, even when people around us reject it, we have a foundation that is immovable. And it will help you withstand anything. Whatever you're going through right now, and I know there are probably a lot of tragic stories in front of me at the moment, the promise of God's word is that if you will wear the belt of truth in this way, you will be victorious. He has not promised you that the wind will stop. He has not promised you that the rain will stop. He has not promised you that there are certain things around you that might not get blown away. But by God's grace and through the blood of Jesus, he has promised you, you'll still be standing in the end. The question is, are you going to put on the belt of truth? Because that's where it all starts. Everything else we talk about over the next several weeks, brothers and sisters, I love you. They mean nothing without this. Put on the belt and get ready for battle. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a society that just sort of wants to make things up as we go, 
in the midst of trials and tribulations and all kinds of things, all manner of things that we face in this room. Father, the stories alone just in this room in front of me would probably just crush us if we took the time this afternoon to hear them. And yet, in the midst of that, you've given us a belt. So Lord, may we wear it. May we appeal to it. May we allow it to purify our hearts and change us so that we might emerge victorious, standing on the firm foundation that you have laid for us in your holy word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.